Isn't Zelensky just such a hero? Welcome to another episode of America Explained, the podcast that brings the important voices and perspectives shaping American politics, foreign policy and culture to an international audience. Welcome to another episode of America Explained, the podcast that brings the important voices and perspectives shaping American politics, foreign policy and culture to an international audience. Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of America Explained. I'm your host Andy Gorthorpe, bringing you an update on day four of the conflict in Ukraine. Like with the previous episode, I'm recording this quickly, not in my usual studio setup, so I apologize for the audio quality, but again, I just wanted to get something out there with a quick update about what's happening on the ground in the conflict, but also the international response in this, particularly how the US has been reacting to the conflict so far. Just as I finished recording this episode, Putin gave a speech announcing that he's placed Russia's nuclear forces on a high level of alert. This brings the crisis into a really dangerous and unprecedented phase. This is no longer just a crisis involving two nuclear powers, it's a nuclear crisis. Putin's reason for moving the crisis into this realm was that he said firstly Western officials had made some threatening statements towards Russia. But secondly, and I think this is more important, he cited the ongoing discussions and indeed the measures that have already been taken in the realm of economic sanctions against Russia. Later in this episode, I talk about how the West is considering some truly unprecedented and absolutely enormously consequential actions against the Russian economy that could send it into complete freefall. Putin is now trying to use nuclear weapons to scare the West, to deter them from taking these economic measures. He's doing it as those debates are happening right now about the scope of these economic actions against Russia. And it's truly just such a dangerous moment. No doubt the United States is going to put its own nuclear forces on a higher level of alert right now. And we just do not know what's going to happen next. Once you climb that ladder of escalation, it's very difficult to come down it again. And as I'm going to talk about just in a minute, Russia's military campaign is not going well in Ukraine right now. That doesn't mean that they're not ultimately going to prevail, but Putin is feeling under pressure on multiple fronts in Ukraine and also internationally. And we have to, I'm very deeply worried about what he's going to do next. But to begin by talking about what's been happening on the ground in the conflict, I know it's been a really confusing media environment, especially with social media. It's difficult to know what to believe and what's really been happening. But I'll tell you the story so far as I've been able to piece it together. So this is, as I said, day four of the conflict. I'm recording this Sunday. And it seems that so far Russian forces have really not advanced as quickly as they expected. They had some very notable failures, such as in the first 24 hours when they seized an airfield near Kiev, and it seems the intention here was to establish an airbridge and then quickly lift in a large number of forces for an overwhelming push on Kiev. But they got driven out of that airfield, that this gambit failed, and at the time of my recording, the Russians hold no substantial population centers within Ukraine. An attempt to push into Kharkiv, which is the second largest city in the country, it's in the east, overnight seems to have failed. So I've seen reports this morning of journalists driving around there and it seems to still be in Ukrainian hands. 
there have been clashes within Kiev itself, or at least on the outskirts of it. It seems likely, although we can't know for sure, that this was in large part uh, the result of pre-positioned infiltrators, so Russian special forces and recon units that had hidden themselves away in Kiev before the conflict started, not actually the bulk of the Russian advance hitting into Kiev. So in these first few days, we've really seen that Russia's elite forces have not managed to achieve what seems to have been their goal of a very, very quick breakthrough. And it seems like they were perhaps expecting the Ukrainian military to just kind of collapse as soon as it ran into trouble. That has absolutely not happened so far. The other thing that's been notable is that Russia has really struggled to establish air supremacy. Ukrainian aircraft and air defenses still seem to be operating, which is making it much harder for the Russians to achieve their goals. Russian jets are still getting shot down from the sky. Their helicopters are still getting shot down. So the Russians haven't yet got control of the air. There were also reports that the Russians lost perhaps as many as 200 to 250 elite paratroopers when two transport planes got shot down, which would be a really major loss for them and a very, very big mistake if it's true. Again, an indication that they were taking big risks in the hope that they could cause the collapse of the Ukrainian military with one audacious, surprising assault. But if that was their intention, that hasn't worked, and now they're going to have to shift to other plans. And it's important to emphasize that we are still in the very early stages of this conflict. The attack on the cities has still not really begun in anything like the shape that it's probably going to happen in the future. At first, the Russians are mainly concentrating now, I think, on trying to destroy Ukrainian units outside of the cities so that they can safely settle in for long sieges and for urban combat, which could stretch on for weeks or months. The Ukrainians are clearly going to put up very stiff and heroic resistance, so I think we're settling in for a long slog now, and when the battle for the cities begins, it's really not going to be pretty. The Russians have been bringing in a lot more forces, so it seems that most of the forces that they had massed for this in invasion are now engaged. And I think we're probably going to witness a move by the Russians away from trying to use the elite infantry that they have to make breakthroughs quickly in an audacious fashion. And instead, the Russians are probably going to move to fighting the way that we've so often seen them fight before, where basically they mass very, very large numbers of forces just to rain down what in military parlance is called fires. So that means artillery, missiles, shells, bombs, but just to really rain down fire on targets, particularly in urban areas. They haven't been doing this so much so far, perhaps because they wanted, if possible, to minimize civilian casualties, which is why we saw them adopt this alternative approach. But in the past, they've used this tactic to devastating effect. I mean, during the war in Chechnya, they just completely leveled Grozny, the capital city. It's not clear yet if they're willing to go that far in Kiev. Kiev is, is a city that's very important to Russians. It's important to Russian public opinion. I mean, you remember that one of the reasons that Vladimir Putin gave for this conflict is that he said that Kiev is the birthplace of Russian civilization. So if you start destroying the birthplace of Russian civilization in order to save it, then that doesn't really look so good to public opinion back home. So we don't really know how far they're going to go with, with um, using force in urban combat. But if the Russian military is getting frustrated that its approach isn't working, and particularly if Putin starts to feel a lot of pressure at home, 
where a failure in this conflict may cause a lot of Russians and, and actually probably more importantly, the people around Putin to really question whether he's lost it and whether he should be leader of that country anymore. Now, it's way too premature, of course, to talk about Putin being pushed from power and, you know, especially because unfortunately, I think that the, the most likely outcome here is that one way or another, the Russians are still going to prevail. But I don't think we should underestimate the lengths to which Putin is willing to go to make this operation a success because he has so much riding on it at home. So there's a lot of rumors circulating that we're headed in this direction and probably, well, almost definitely the worst nights for, for Kiev and for other Ukrainian cities are still to come. There was at the same time a brief glimmer on the diplomatic front. After speaking to Chinese leader Xi Jinping, Putin said that the Russians might be willing to meet the Ukrainians and talk in Belarus. This seems to be something that he's offering under pressure from Xi, who it seems the Chinese are not really particularly happy about what the Russians are doing. But whether the Russians are really serious about talks is, is really open to question. I would say they're probably not. Around about the same time that Putin made this offer, he said that the Ukrainian government is a government of drug addicts and neo-Nazis, so it doesn't sound too much like he's serious about making a deal with them. But we're just going to have to wait and see. Meanwhile, in the West, we've seen just truly enormous movement, movement that I just wouldn't have imagined was going to happen a week ago, towards putting massive sanctions on the Russian economy, sending a large amount of lethal assistance to the Ukrainian military to help them fight against the Russians, and also to bolster European defenses. So just to take those, those three things in turn, the sanctions that we've had so far have already been really big. So there's been all kinds of, of cutoffs of trade and investment between Europe and the US and Russia. There's now pretty much no flights going between Europe and Russia. The US also cut off Russia's two largest banks from dollar transactions. Now you might say, okay, two banks, that's, that's not a lot, but they collectively make up half of the entire Russian banking sector. And I, I saw that the majority of the Russian population has an account in, in one of these two banks and their payroll gets paid through it. So this is a really big deal. It makes those banks much more isolated. It makes things much more difficult for the, the Russian economy. But what we've also seen developing over Saturday night and into Sunday morning is that the US and the EU have now agreed some additional steps that were considered unthinkable even days ago and are truly enormous. So the first one of these, which is probably the one that you've heard the most about, but is actually probably not the most important of the two, is that a decision now seems to have been made to cut off a large part of the Russian banking sector from SWIFT. SWIFT is the system that allows banks to transfer money across borders. So if a bank can't engage in the SWIFT system, it basically means that it can't move money across borders, which means that Russia can't import things and nor can it export things, which you know does a, a huge amount to damage the Russian economy and also is going to put this enormous pressure on the ruble, the Russian currency, which currently is, is kind of in freefall and the Russians are trying to defend it as much as they can, but that isn't going too well for them right now. And that means that it's gonna become so much more expensive for Russians to buy imported goods. It means that inflation is likely to take hold within Russia, which can be very damaging. We don't yet know 
exactly which parts of the Russian banking sector are going to be cut off from SWIFT. Crucially, we don't know if energy transactions are going to be part of this cutoff or not. Now, if energy transactions aren't part of that cutoff, then it's going to limit its, its impact quite a bit. If they are part of that cutoff, then this is going to have huge consequences for the Russian economy, which relies on exports of, of fossil fuels for a huge amount of its income. But also it's going to have a huge impact on Europe as well, because it could mean that Europe is incapable of buying Russian natural gas. Russia's also suggested that it might actually cut off the flow of gas to Europe if this swift move goes through. So we could be looking at a really, really big reverberation for the European economy where gas could be coming much, much, much more expensive. The other move that is possibly even more consequential, which has now been discussed in the West, is actually placing sanctions on Russia's central bank. This would be a truly unprecedented move for an economy the size of Russia. The US has done this previously with other countries like North Korea and Iran, which have much smaller economies, but they've never done something to a country like Russia before. And if they do, what it would basically mean is that Russia would be unable to defend its currency. It wouldn't be able to try to prop up the value of the ruble and it wouldn't be able to use the money that it's, or at least not all of the money that it's built up in the central bank, its reserves, to protect its economy from the impact of Western sanctions. It could have an absolutely devastating effect on the Russian economy. You know, we would be talking kind of depression level impact on the economy, possibly. Hyperinflation could ensue as the value of the ruble drops. Business confidence would just completely evaporate within Russia. And it could be actually just really terrible for ordinary Russians as well. It's, it's going to, you know, just completely devastate that economy. We don't, again, know actually if they're going to go through with this move on such a large scale yet because we're waiting to see the details. But if they do, I think it would move this conflict into a, a new phase. And when we were moved into that new phase, we would have to start thinking about the Russian reaction. As I talked about in the previous episode, I don't think that we should assume that Russia is going to limit itself to purely an economic response to these Western sanctions. It might also try to engage in cyber attacks and other sources of pressure against Western countries. It may perceive an economic hit on this scale to be an existential threat to the Russian economy and certainly to the Russian government and may try to respond in some way. So we've got to be really worried about that, I think, and we're just kind of waiting to see the details of these Western sanctions. I'm not arguing for not doing them, but they really need to be thought through very, very carefully. And we need to make sure that we have some kind of rules of the road with this competition that's developing here, because these are two nuclear armed powers that we're talking about. And we have to make sure that this conflict doesn't get out of hand and escalate to a level that we really don't want to see at the same time as we're putting all of this pressure on Russia. The putting that pressure on Russia has been much easier so far because there's just been enormous unity within the European Union and NATO, again, just on a level that I don't think we expected. Now, this unity isn't necessarily going to remain, especially if the conflict drags on for weeks and for months. And if the sanctions do economic damage in the West as well as in Russia itself. But right now, there's just no daylight between, between NATO members that we can see. The biggest development that we've seen, and the, one of the ones that's been most surprising, 
is that just today the German government made an enormous announcement about its defense spending. It said it's going to permanently meet the 2% NATO target for defense spending from now on and set aside an additional 100 billion euro fund to develop its forces. This is overnight making Germany the biggest defense spender within Europe. At the same time, Germany has completely flipped from its previous position that it didn't want to send lethal equipment to Ukraine to, to use against the Russians, and it started to send weapons to Ukraine as well. It's impossible to overstate how much this is just a completely new era, a reorientation for German defense spending and security policy. And it's finally Germany taking up its share of the burden within NATO and contributing to European security. And Germany is a very, very big, powerful country. So this is a really consequential thing. And it's also not at all what Putin wants. It's, in, it's amazing how he's managed to bring about so many of the things that he feared, like unity within NATO, and most importantly of all, Germany finally stepping up and taking its place in European defense. We don't know, of course, if this unity is going to last, but right now it's, it's just really remarkable. Many Western countries are sending supplies to Ukraine as well. It's actually not clear how they're getting into Ukraine right now. Airdrops are no longer possible. Western officials aren't saying how they're getting them into the country, which I think is understandable. It seems like it must be over land if it's not by air. And as I said in the last episode, this could become a real source of friction with Russia if the Russian military starts getting frustrated, if it becomes tempted to attack those points at which military equipment is flowing into Ukraine. Right now, Russia isn't really doing anything about this, that they don't have enough control of Ukraine to be turning their attention to this problem. But we could see that happen in the coming weeks and months, so that's something to worry about, and it's another potential source of escalation here. The final thing that, that I want to say about this is that, I mean, isn't Zelensky just such a hero? It's been completely amazing seeing him rally his people through these short videos that he's been posting on social media. They've also had the effect, I think, of really galvanizing international opinion in favor of Ukraine and against Russia, because it's impossible to watch those videos and not just be so inspired by his spirit, so inspired by what Ukraine's going through right now, and he's really made very personal and very real this act of Russian aggression. So it's been so difficult, even for people in the past who have been more willing to take a softer line towards Russia or to downplay and be unsympathetic to the Ukrainians. It's just so hard now to sustain that point of view when you see this unfolding before your very eyes. And I think he and also this really stiff resistance that the Ukrainians have been putting up militarily to the Russians have created the space for this movement that we're seeing in the transatlantic alliance towards much, much harder measures towards Russia. If the Ukrainians had collapsed really quickly, then we would have seen right from the beginning some people in these debates, particularly in Europe, would have started saying, oh, well, there's nothing we can do now. Russia's taken over Ukraine and we just have to accommodate ourselves to that fact. But the, by putting up this kind of spirited defense, they have really created the space for this really strong and consequential international response to take shape. Long may that resistance within Ukraine continue. I fear that there's some very, very dark days and weeks ahead. 
and we still don't know how this is going to work out, but the odds are still stacked against the Ukrainians. But Zelensky and they are absolute heroes, and their example is not going to be forgotten in the future as Europe and America confront the true nature of Vladimir Putin's regime and come up with a strategy for facing it down. So that's it for this episode. Thanks for tuning in. If you found this useful, please share it with some friends. It really helps me get the word out there about this podcast, and I'm going to be putting out more episodes in the coming days, analyzing the situation some more and giving you an update on what's happening. That's all we have time for this episode. Thanks for listening to America Explained. You can contact us on producer at america-explained.com or through the America Explained Facebook page. I'm your host, Andy Gawthorpe. Designer and advisor is Janice Killian. Music by Soundwave. America Explained is an APD media production. See you next time.